You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. I'm here. Aaron's here. No Redskins game to talk about. They had the bye week. Uh, They get the Jets coming up next Sunday. Big game for drafting position. The Jets won yesterday. So did the Dolphins. What are they doing? And the Falcons as well. Redskins inching up the 2020 draft board. They're number two right now behind Cincinnati. A good day to everybody, um, and happy Veterans Day, and thank you to all of you who have served um, in our armed forces um, and uh, served in wars. We appreciate all that you do, and we think of you on a day like today. Um, Antonio Brown, by the way, was a big part of the conversation on Friday, and I said to you, I'm ready for Antonio Brown. Well, Uh, according to Schefter over the weekend, Antonio Brown's not playing for anybody this year. He has not yet been put on the commissioner's exempt list or suspended, but is still being investigated for multiple claims of sexual assault made uh, made against him um, in that civil lawsuit in Florida. And Schefter reported that if somebody decides to sign him, that he will be immediately placed on the commissioner's exempt list and he's not going to play football in the NFL this year. So there goes that. Um, back to the draft position. I mean, what is Miami thinking? Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick is now 2-2 two and two as a starter since coming in in the fourth quarter in that game against the Redskins where he nearly led them to a win after trailing 17-3. to three. Um, he's two and two and they, in the two games they lost Aaron, they led in both of those games at Buffalo and at Pittsburgh on Monday night. Uh, they are really doing a poor job of tanking for Tua or for Burrow more on that coming up. What are they doing going out and winning games against good teams on the road? I know Jacoby Brissett didn't play again yesterday, but still that's a good win for Miami to go into Indianapolis and win. I remember when we were talking about, I think it was, I don't know if it was us or at the other show, we were talking about win totals around the league. And I said the Dolphins might be too low simply because Fitzpatrick was going to screw around and win them a few games. And that's exactly what happened here. No doubt that's happened. Um, they, you know, yes, yesterday um, the NFL board, first of all, saw for the first time in 18 years, a team that had lost six in a row beat a team that had won six in a row coming in. That was Atlanta over New Orleans. Atlanta went off as a 13-and-a-half, 14-point underdog in that game, and Miami won as an 11-point underdog outright. So, unfortunately, those were not the two big underdogs I was on. I was on Cincinnati as a big underdog, and that didn't quite work out. Now, did it. Uh, I was also on Carolina, and we're going to get to that game uh, here momentarily, including, by the way, we'll get to the other NFL games and last night's game as well. But, you know, the Redskins uh, didn't play yesterday, but they did gain ground in this, you know, 2020 draft positioning uh, situation. The Bengals are 0-8. Right now they would have the number one pick. The number two pick as of today would be the Redskins at 1-8. They're the only other team um, with one win or zero wins. Bengals zero, Redskins one. After that, you got a bunch of teams with um, right now with two wins. You have the Giants, the Dolphins, the Jets, and the Falcons all have two wins. And listen to some of these heavyweight matchups the rest of the way. All right? Uh, Cincinnati still plays the Jets and the Dolphins. The Jets still have the Bengals and the Redskins. The Redskins still have the Giants and the Jets. And the Giants still have the Dolphins and the Redskins. Oh, and the Red Hot Dolphins? They still have the Giants, Jets, and Bengals. 
I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick could really single-handedly take the number one pick potentially, which it looked like Miami would have at one point, and they could end up having very easily the sixth, seventh, eighth pick in the draft, ninth pick in the draft, when all is said and done. I was also thinking about Ryan Fitzpatrick. If the Redskins had signed him instead of Case Keenum in the offseason, first of all, they wouldn't have had to trade for him. Um, Secondly, the Redskins would be at least a three-win team right now with Ryan Fitzpatrick playing. Wouldn't matter. They'd still suck. They'd be three and five. He he would have lost a few games single-handedly, but he would have won one or two single-handedly. No doubt. Yeah, which is always his M.O. He's going to win some games for you like he has for Miami, and he'll lose some games for you. But the Redskins, well, he wouldn't have beaten – he would have still beaten Miami as the Redskins starter because he wouldn't have had himself to contend with late in the game. Um, wanted to start before we go around the NFL with what we saw on Saturday and what was, you know, another one of these games of the century in college football. We talked a lot about it on Friday. It was a game we were all anticipating, of course, in years past, LSU and Bama never lived up to the billing. You didn't have points. You usually had one-sided games in which Bama had won. Uh, Alabama had won eight in a row coming in. They had three shutouts over LSU over the last eight years. And, you know, you're going back to the last time uh, LSU won in one of these heavyweight late season matchups with Bama. They won nine to six. You know, so it was um, it was expected, as we talked about on Friday, to be a much different game because LSU's got Joe Burrow and they've got Joe Brady, the offensive coordinator that they got from the Saints who had worked with Sean Payton. And they've been a completely different team. Completely different LSU team. You know, the the knock against LSU over the years is they've had as much talent as Alabama and Ohio State, but they just haven't had an offensive scheme or a quarterback to match up with those teams. And that's why they've always sort of come up short, despite putting, you know, loads of NFL talent into the league. I mean, they've had, you know, in some cases, better recruiting classes than, than Alabama and more pros than Alabama. But the quarterback position and offensively is where they've really come up short. And this year you sort of knew it early on when they went to Austin and hung 45 on Texas and then they started, you know, scoring in the 60s. It was it was totally unlike LSU teams of the past. When LSU blew out a bad team in the past, it was 37 to 7. You know, maybe it was 45 to 10. It wasn't 65 to 14, 66 to 38. Like they were putting up massive numbers. And Joe Burrow was already becoming and had already become after the Texas game, really, a guy that had gone from, you know, sort of another sort of LSU guy last year, not going to amount to much, to a first round consideration in the 2020 draft. And then in recent weeks, with his performances against Florida in particular, which is really, you know, a great football game. Florida was out; it w- was without that night two of its best defensive players. But Bur- Burrow went twenty-one of twenty-four, threw for three touchdowns, had some big runs in the game, and that was like, oh boy, this guy! Look at him too—the way he plays. He looks like the real deal here. So. Now, you know, going into the Bama game, he was pretty much a projected top 10, worst case. Some people had already moved him up to the top spot. After Saturday, he is the prohibitive favorite to win the Heisman Trophy and a strong favorite to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. And with the obvious prefacing of this, which is we don't know that much 
about evaluating college players. It's a crapshoot. We're wrong all the time. NFL experts who cover the sport are wrong all the time. And people who get paid to make these picks are wrong all the time. First-round quarterbacks are basically like a 25 to 30% hit rate. So with all of that understood, we are still fans of the sport, we still watch, and we still have opinions. My opinion about Joe Burrow is he's the next great thing. Like, he's the guy that's, by the time we get to April and the 2020 draft, he's going to get evaluated in the same way that some of the real great quarterbacks in recent years that we've talked about. Like, Andrew Luck was the recent, you know, can't-miss quarterback. Highest, I think, I, I believe that if you go back and look at the grades on on uh, on Andrew Luck, he's the highest rated quarterback in recent history, and I think Burrow's going to get to that level. That's my that's my opinion. Could be totally wrong about that. You know, a lot of people have liked other guys, not as much. W- would you agree? Like, I'm trying to think of all the guys here um, in recent years. You know, I, I think a lot of people like Jameis Winston. I think Andrew Luck is is the highest rated QB. Yes. In the last ten years, Cam Newton sort no, of Cam was not not to begin rated. with, but by the time we got to the draft, a lot of people have had a evaluated lot of people him liked it. But even then, he was he was still kind of the the project. Stafford was than, rated really yeah, high. Yeah, Stafford was rated coming high. out. Bradford was rated pretty high. Bradford was rated pretty high coming out. But yeah, Luck is definitely the gold standard. I think Burrow's going to be the next Luck by the time we get there could be completely wrong and it may not even matter. I mean he I mean as it turns out luck was really good just injury prone in a shortened career. Um but luck was definitely a guy that sort of had we knew that he was an elite quarterback talent at the NFL level. You know, you can talk about the injuries and you can talk about the shortened career. Andrew Luck if he had stayed healthy, if he had uh, probably was going to be one of the all-time great NFL quarterbacks. I think Joe Burrow has that in him. I would, uh, to me, Saturday. I felt it going into Saturday, but there's no chance if I had the number one pick in the draft, I would take anybody but Joe Burrow, unless I already had Aaron Rodgers or you know, if I were New England, I would take Joe Burrow. But they're not going to have the number one pick in the draft, right? But if I'm any of these teams that potentially have the number one pick in the draft, including the two teams that have just drafted quarterbacks in the last two years, the Giants and the Jets, I'm taking Joe Burrow. I am. Well, what about the third team that take, took a quarterback recently that should be in the top five? Well, yeah, I'm taking Joe Burrow. Now, that gets me to the conversation that I wanted to have here at the top. And I did it for a while this morning on radio and took calls on this. And that is that if you weren't sure before Saturday, you are sure now that we got to see Haskins here for seven games and we got to have this eight-game snapshot. And it may not tell us everything we need to know, but it's got to give us a lean one way or the other. Because if the Redskins are sitting there, you may say Tua, you may feel the same way about Tua Tunga Viola. You might. I think that way about Burrow. I don't think that way about Tua. I don't think that way about Justin Herbert. I don't think that way about Jake Fromm or Jake Eason or Jalen Hurts. I do feel that way about Joe Burrow. What do I like about Joe, Joe Burrow? He's got the size. He can make every throw. He throws with anticipation. He throws accurately from the pocket. He throws accurately on the move. He has great feel in the pocket, great vision in the pocket. Watch him. He looks like a pro quarterback going across the board with his reads, looking a safety off, throwing back to the guy he knows he can throw to. 
He's also very mobile and big and strong as a mobile guy. You know, one of those guys that's big, luck, he's very luckish, you know, Andrew Luck-like. I think he's got a lot of Andrew, uh, Aaron Rodgers in him. You know, he's able to create, make throws, extending plays, make plays with his legs, everything about Joe Burrow I like. And, yes, I do know that Dwayne Haskins beat him out at Ohio State. I'm very familiar with that. Wouldn't mean anything to me. That's three years ago, all right? JT Barrett beat both of them out. Okay, so what does that mean? I mean, Joe, you can't go back and look at the evaluations from two, three years ago. you got to evaluate them now. What do you see now? I see Aaron Rodgers. I see Andrew Luck. I see that kind of talent. That's what I see. Going back to OTAs, minicamp, training camp, early season, midseason, when I've been screaming about wanting to see Dwayne Haskins much sooner rather than later, a big part of it was I knew what was coming in 2020. And I said that over and over again. Some of you thought, oh my, what are you talking about drafting a quarterback in 2020? Well, I hope that they don't have to draft a quarterback in 2020, but I better damn know what I have before 2020. I need to know what I have. And eight games may not be enough. That's why I wanted him to play 12 games or 13 games or 14 games. What we do know for sure is that they haven't felt like he was very good or very ready to play on a terrible football team before the ninth week of the season. That's a bit of a red flag, as we've talked about. It certainly is an indication that they overdrafted him. But it doesn't mean that he's not going to end up being great. I actually feel better about him than I did when he came out of the draft. I think I've expressed that. I was not a fan of him coming out of Ohio State as a first-round pick. If you told me I could have gotten Dwayne Haskins in the second round or third round, yes. Let's take a flyer on that. Not at 15 overall. And the franchise, the Redskins football people, didn't have that great on him. Dan and Bruce did. Dumb and Dumber did. You know, Kyle Smith and the football people had a second-round grade on Haskins. Maybe late first they would have taken him if they would have traded back up like they did for Sweat. They may be wrong on Sweat. I think I – I don't know. It's early on Sweat, too. I was a big Sweat guy, not a big Haskins guy in terms of their first two picks in the first round. I wanted Sweat taken at 15. I'm probably going to look bad about that. Right? I may be totally wrong about Haskins. We're all wrong on these things. Nobody's right all the time. You know what a good draft percentage hit rate is in the NFL? 38% in terms of the entirety of the draft. If you can hit on 38% of them where they become contributors for more than three seasons, that's 38% of the time you hit on that. That means 62% of the time you get it dead wrong. It's a really hard thing to do to evaluate young people especially at the quarterback position where the hit rate's like 20 25%, somewhere in that range, maybe 30. Just go back. I mean, we've done this before, I mean, many times before. The list of, of the quarterbacks over the years that have been drafted. You know, last year's, last year's draft, 2018, how's the draft of Mayfield, Darnold, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and the last guy taken in the first round, Lamar Jackson looking? Right now it looks like Jackson. I like Darnold. I do like Allen a little bit. And I did like Rosen. Rosen doesn't look very good. Mayfield, what a punk he is. I mean, they won yesterday. They won. I, I watched some of that game on, on as, as they were switching it around on, on red zone, Aaron. 
because I had Cleveland laying two and a half in the smell test, three yesterday by the time we got to kickoff. He stinks. Who knows, though? Maybe he'll end up being good. I don't know. Trubisky from the year before. Now, Mahomes and Watson have turned out pretty good. Goff is sort of regressing in the moment. Paxton Lynch, Hackenberg, Winston Mariota, Bortles, Manziel, Bridgewater, E.J. Manuel, uh, Luck Griffin. By the way, did you see the backfield yesterday at one point in Baltimore? The Heisman backfield. Ingram, Jackson, and Griffin lined up as a running back. And they pitched to him. Came down the line on a little option pitch with Jackson. He pitched to Griffin, and he got six or seven yards, I think. He then went into the game late and threw an interception. But, man, does he tweet after games he plays in. Platitude after platitude. Uh, Tana, look, 2012. All right, Luck, Griffin, Tannehill, Whedon. You know who's playing awfully well right now? And maybe the best of, of the group standing? Ryan Tannehill, who in four starts is 3-1 and one with Tennessee with three comeback wins. Anyway, it's such a crapshoot. But I love Joe, Joe Burrow. I think Joe Burrow looks like one of those guys that, you know, any fan, any one of us can look at and say, yeah. You know, so, you know, going back to last year's draft, remember, they were talking about the draft of 2020 and all the quarterbacks, but no one was talking about Burrow. It was Tank Fertua. It was Justin Herbert. It was Jake Fromm. It was Jake Eason. It was potentially maybe what Jalen Hurts could be. Nobody's talking about Joe Burrow last year's draft. Burrow, to me, looks like the number one pick overall, and that, to me, means that it now becomes paramount for the Redskins to do their best to find out what they have in Dwayne Haskins. If old man Callahan even suggests at any point in time that Case Keenum is healthy enough to start and we'll make that decision later, I don't think he'll ever say that about Colt McCoy because Colt was Jay's guy and he can't stand Jay and Jay can't stand him. If he says it mentions Case Keenum as a, getting a potential start the rest of the way, I don't. I, I just I'll throw up my arms and just say you guys all deserve each other, which they do already. You have to play Haskins. You got to keep increasing the workload. You got to you got to get him comfortable. We got to see what we have. Now, that begs the question, will they be able to identify what they have, or are they too stupid? Of course, that's a concern. We all know that. The people doing the evaluating, the people making the decisions. You know, I just am saying from a, from a fan standpoint, don't you want to see eight games? I would have rather seen 12 or 13. we got to see eight so we have at least a sense of what he is, and I think we will. Now, whether or not they'll be able to determine what they have, that's a different story. Whether or not they'll even consider a quarterback in 2020 if there's the next Andrew Luck or Aaron Rodgers at the top of the draft. Or maybe there are two of them with Tua and with Burrow. Um, I don't think they'll make that move. You know, they're the worst at admitting mistakes. They rarely even recognize the mistakes they make as mistakes. So they can't admit them. They're not going to draft a quarterback. This is for our conversation. See Haskins for eight games. So at the end of the year, we can say, hmm, should they draft a quarterback or shouldn't they? I'm not ready to make up my mind on this. I haven't made up my mind. I want to see Haskins. I I would much prefer Haskins to show me that he can be Matt Ryan or Matt Stafford. 
Like, I don't think Haskins is going to show me that he's Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, or Aaron Rodgers, or Phillip Rivers, because I love Phillip Rivers. I don't think he's going to show me that. What I what I would like to see is that he can show me that he's Matt Stafford or Matt Ryan. You know, that there's that kind of potential. That would be awesome. It'd be great to know that you have that kind of talent. Now, you got to put teams around those guys. They're not going to carry you by themselves. Matt Ryan didn't get to that Super Bowl by himself. He got there with a lot of talent. And by the way, a really good offensive coach in Kyle Shanahan. Uh, But if we see something like that, then they can leverage their top pick into, uh, you know, a slew of additional picks or into Chase Young. Now, if he shows us that he's Matt Ryan or Matt Stafford rather than Matt Schaub the rest of the way, uh, then, you know, more likely than not, they may have won a game or two to put him into position, uh, put him into a different position with respect to the draft board where they might have number four or five or six, something like that. I've mentioned this before. It's a bad year to be bad. You know, there's so many bad teams. There's a real competition for those top two, three picks, which are going to be Burrow, Tua, Chase Young. They're going to come with a lot of leverage, you know, a top three pick in this draft. They will. If Haskins ends up developing into the kind of guy that we think could end up being, you know, a top 10 to 12 starter eventually in the league with a good team around him, then I bet he wins a game or two down the stretch. You know, might beat the Jets, might beat the Giants to get, you know, a 2-14, and 3-13 and 13 kind of a season. And then you're talking about no chance to catch Cincinnati, no chance probably if you beat the Jets to catch the Jets. Um, I don't know what the Dolphins are doing. <laughs> I have no idea what the Dolphins are doing. Dolphins... Man, you know, if they had run a good two-point play where they were trying against the Redskins or played Fitzpatrick for just one more drive in that game, the Redskins would be sitting there, you know, at 0-9 with the number one pick because the Bengals are only 0-8. They're only 0-8. The game Saturday, what a terrific college football game. I love Saturdays. Aaron does too. We both are massive college football fans. And I do know that many of you are much more NFL people than college people. I love the NFL. Don't get me wrong. I love the NFL. But I love Saturdays. I've always preferred Saturdays to Sundays. And Saturday was one of those days where you had Penn State-Minnesota early, which was a great football game. Minnesota's undefeated. I can tell you right now, they're not going undefeated. They're underdogs to Iowa this Saturday. And they also have Wisconsin left. And then to sit back and watch that LSU-Bama game on that glorious CBS high-definition with Brad Nessler doing play-by-play. I love Brad. I love Vern Lundquist for all those years. I think Nessler's great. Ne- Brad Nessler's great at everything he does. I'm not a Gary Danielson guy, but he is sort of now synonymous with SEC football yes. and CBS. You know, that voice with Vern and now that voice with Nessler. What a game that was. I mean, the two teams... You know, LSU going in there and so aggressive, throwing the football, showing them right from the jump. You know, that first drive that Tua fumbles, Alabama's going down the field and Tua fumbles without getting hit. And and LSU takes over from, you know, what was that first drive? Was that first drive like a 90-plus yard drive? It was inside the 10 where Tua fumbled, I think. And they're throwing the ball aggressive. And they take a 33-13 to halftime lead. By the way, just as a quick aside, um, sort of a coaching blunder. You know, 
in that Super Bowl where New England faced Seattle and they didn't call the timeout at the end of the game to ensure that Brady had more time after Seattle scored, and I said over and over again at the time, some of you remember, most of you probably don't, that's fine. I said, even the great Bill, Bill, Bill Belichick will make a clock management timeout error, and he did. And some of you said, well, they ended up with an interception. Uh, he didn't pass on calling timeouts because he had a vision of an interception. That particular game was a game in which he had no risk of calling timeouts to ensure that his, de- that his, that his great quarterback had time with the ball because Seattle was in a position where they would not have been been able to stop the clock had they not scored. You had to prepare for the worst in that particular instance, and he made an error. He did. Nick Saban, who's pretty good at this stuff, at halftime, he's just letting LSU run the clock down. Um, And he's got all these timeouts there, hasn't used any of them. By the time... LSU scores the touchdown. It was a Clyde Edwards alert, one yard touchdown, touchdown run to make it 26 to 13. Um, there are like 15 seconds left in the half when there should have been like a minute 15 left. So I'm thinking, well, you know, there was no LSU wasn't going to run out of time in that particular spot. So I'm thinking, well, he's just going to go to halftime down 26 13. I don't know why he would do that because LSU gets the ball to start the second half. Why didn't he want more time for his offense? Well, then they get the ball back, and they start with 11 seconds to go after the kick return, and Tua throws an interception. So they were trying to score with 11 seconds to go. Made a big mistake at the end of the half. Great football game. Burrow was great. Tua on a bad ankle, you know, had his moments. Um, Clyde Edwards... Hilaire was so great as a five foot eight inch running back, had some unbelievable runs in the game. It was just a great college football game that LSU won 46 to 41. I'm going to get into the college football rankings ramifications, the playoff ramification issues um, a little bit later on in the show when we do weekend DVR. Um, but I, I, I just, it was such a great game. And Ed Orgeron, who remember when he got named coach. Everybody's like, well, this isn't going to last very long, and they'll end up, have, you know, they'll make a big hire here. And Orgeron, you know, kept the job. The players loved him, the whole thing. He now is kicking, you know, everybody's tail, taking names, especially against ranked teams. And this was him in the locker room after the game, after they had gone into Tuscaloosa, beaten Alabama for the first time in nine years. Listen to how fired up Ed Orgeron is. Change the narrative. Yes, sir. We're going to beat their ass in recruiting. We're going to beat their ass every time they see us. You understand that? Yes, sir. Roll that one. Fuck you. Yeah! (laughs) Oh, that was so good. That has made the rounds over and over again. And, of course, on radio, I had to bleep it out. I could have given you a warning. I hope I didn't really upset anybody there. We didn't have to bleep it out there on the podcast. That dude, he is a motivator. And that intensity and hatred of a rival. God, I wish I had a team like that that one of my teams felt that way about. You know, the Redskins and their NFC East rivals. Maryland and Duke from back in the day. I don't have any of that anymore. That feeling of going in on, and by the way, there's nothing better than doing it on the road. Going into Tuscaloosa and doing what they did to Bama. 
recruiting. Roll Tide, what? F you. That was awesome. All right, we got a lot to get to. We're going to go around the NFL. We are going to come back, talk about some things that happened over the weekend, and I want to get to the college football playoff rankings. We'll talk about Maryland's wonderful effort in Columbus against Ohio State, but also Maryland's basketball game Saturday night against Rhode Island, which I thought was a really good win. Uh, But before we get to that, we're going to get to some Trent Williams stuff right after I tell you about MyBookie.ag. MyBookie.ag is a place where you can rely and be confident that you will be able to bet with reliable point spreads and reliable payouts. It's what you want. You want to feel like if you're giving somebody the money and you win, you're going to get paid. And MyBookie.ag is one of the best in the business. It's where several people I know play. It's where you should play too if you don't have a place already. I wouldn't tell you guys that if they weren't one of the biggest and one of the best. They've got all kinds of betting opportunities, obviously straight bets, parlays, teasers, in-game action, futures. They've got it all. They've got quality lines. You can totally rely on the point spreads that they give you. And again, you're going to get paid if you win. Here's the deal. Go to mybookie.ag. Use my promo code, KevinDC. If you do, they'll double your first deposit when you activate your uh, account at mybookie.ag. Mybookie.ag. Enter KevinDC. Mybookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. All right, let's bring in Ben Standig. Uh, Ben's a good friend from The Athletic, covers the Redskins. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Standig. Um, Friday after the show, the, the news on Trent Williams came out that the Redskins, we knew that he was on the non-football injury list, um, and what was next was to find out whether or not the team was going to pay him any of his 2019 base salary, and the announcement came out that they were not going to. So here's my first question. I believe that this is a very polarizing issue among fans. One fan will say, he told his story, he had cancer, they didn't see it, and furthermore, they didn't really care very much. And then the next person will say, you know, he signed a contract, he should have been more responsible for his own well-being, and he's the one that held out. Do you agree with me that this has sort of polarized the fan base, this Trent Williams situation? Yeah, no, for sure. I went, um, I used my Sunday bye week to go out um, and about and watch football like at a at an establishment with like 20 TVs like like I did back in the day. Uh, it was kind of fun. And one of my buddies I've always like sort of hung out with when I'm a, when I'm around uh, for football. His comment on Trent Williams was very much of the well, you know what? I don't care if he doesn't get paid. Like what you said, he he um, signed a contract, all that stuff. And yet, you know, most of the time I'm hearing people going the other way because they're just anti so Bruce Allen and the Redskins at this point. I suspect a lot of it is that most people are not, you know, keeping up with it minute by minute, reading all the details, whatever they are, the way you and I are, and therefore they sort of come in with preconceived notions. Guy has a contract, he's holding out, and, you know, this is a guy that had a bunch of injuries, suspensions, things like that. And the Redskins stood by him, gave him, made him the highest paid tackle. Now he's holding out. What the heck? And then other people just see, wow, this guy had this, you know, he learned he's got this cancer uh, situation that, you know, it sounds like at one point was, was potentially pretty serious. And the team, according to the stories we're hearing, you know, was pretty, uh, I don't know if ignored is the right word, but, you know, didn't seem to do much about it based on what Trent Williams is saying. And so I think it just depends on, did you, did you come into this situation thinking the Redskins were 
were, were the enemy, or did you come into the situation thinking Trent Williams, um, or you know, basically you're going to you're going to live and die with the Redskins almost no matter what 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 happened. Um, it, it's incredibly it's an incredibly weird situation. It's going to be one that gets worse by the minute. I think the Redskins, of course, ultimately do themselves no favors ever. Because regardless of whether the facts are on their side ultimately here or not, once once we learn more, nobody believes anything with what they say. I mean, I think that's just the reality where we're at. Like, it's hard to believe where they're at. And, and uh, like, I get it. They can't say certain things because of HIPAA laws and things like that when that's fine. But, you know, just even the way Bruce Allen has addressed this a little bit over the recent few months, it just comes across with minimal sincerity. And when you're talking about a cancer situation like this, Wow. And, and not to mention, I mean, it wouldn't matter who the player was, but we're talking about the guy who has been their best player for a decade, the, the, the true Redskin for life that we all assumed, and that this guy so really wants out. It just makes them look so bad. I get why some fans might view the opposite, but I think I would imagine most seem to go the other way right now, which is the Redskins are at fault because they're always at fault because that's the way we're sort of uh, conditioned at this point. Yeah, I, I um I tweeted out Saturday after reading and getting caught up to speed on everything that happened late Friday, including um, Hoffman's conversation with Trent, your story, Kime's story. You know, we had already had Mike Jones's story from earlier in the day. That you know, it's really um, it it just seems very incomplete to me. That's my my reaction. Is that the the best news is that Trent's alive. All right, more than that—that's the most important thing. And from a Redskins standpoint, it, while it didn't cost them anything contractually at this point, they look incompetent and petty and mean-spirited once again. You know, and and his side may have holes, and my guess is that it does. But their side is essentially trivial because of their past. Like it's meaningless because of their past. The people you know aren't aren't going to give them the benefit of the doubt, and so. Ultimately, he's never going to play for them again, and they didn't trade him. They will eventually. They'll probably get less for him than they could have gotten. You know, that'll be open for debate, and maybe we'll never know. And I, I, I don't think we'll ever know if we if we trust their word on it. But it's like, I'm ready to move on. Like, I, I, who cares about this anymore? Unless you really feel like, wow, this is another reflection of just how mean-spirited they are and how little heart they have. This man had cancer. And they, they, they were incompetent in, in diagnosing it, and then they were incredibly dispassionate and, and cold-hearted in dealing with it, you know, over the last year. Um, and if you think that that has, like, you know, changed your opinion about the organization in any way, but not for me it doesn't. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, like, moved on. Like, it's like... I, I, we, can, we won't know what they'll get for him until March. They can't trade him until March. And, and and I am interested to know what the facts are, but I don't know that we're ever going to know the facts because there's never going to be an independent investigation to this. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, like, you know, go back to what was being said over the course of the, from the point that Trent Williams was first holding out. I mean, Jay Gruden was largely the one speaking, and, you know, I can imagine he was maybe not necessarily saying what Jay Gruden would always want to say. He was speaking on behalf of the organization since Bruce Allen refused to do it. And we con- and then and then we did hear from Bruce Allen on rare occasions, but the the message that both of them had was that we believe Trent Williams will be back. Now, it seems impossible. It, it, it seems unlikely at that time, but we didn't know. Now it seems impossible, based on what Trent Williams has come out and said, that he told them he had no interest in playing for them months ago. And we see what he said once he did show up 
um, but, but by the by the trade deadline. So they came out with this like they, I, I, you know, I they, they they didn't state to the degree of Trent Williams's cancer situation to us, and we didn't really know too much until Trent Williams told us. But they seemingly did, and which makes it even sort of colder the way the situation was handled. Like they. Or making, I mean, <laughs> like they're talking with such certainty. I can't tell if they're trying to lie to us, to the to the to the other teams out there who might be wanting to trade Trent Williams, or they're just lying to themselves. But like, no matter what it was, the whole thing was disingenuous. Came across as disingenuous, and here we are. Where like, I'm not one of those people who thought they definitely had to make a trade by the deadline. But I think there will be value for him in the off season. But regardless, it just looks so bad, and. You know, this all the things he said the other day in the locker room never happened if they deal him by the deadline for a second round pick or whatever they were going to get. They they allowed that to happen. I, it's Trent Williams, as he said, was silent for months out of respect for Dan Snyder. Why would he, if you believe that, why would he say anything upon getting traded to Cleveland or New England or whatever? So they, they, they messed up from a PR perspective. They haven't already secured anything in the draft at this point. Like There's just so much out there that just it just boggles my mind. And I, the way I would look at it always with the Redskins is it's the pride takes over and they're cool winning the battle and losing the war over and over again like they did with Kirk Cousins on some level and other situations. And it's just it's just bad business. Like Without even knowing all the specifics of what, what happened here, it's just bad business. They could have had assets by now. They wouldn't have had this PR headache by now. We we, we know it's only going to get uglier going forward. For what? Like if he made it clear he doesn't want to be here. You got to know at some point when to hold him and when to fold him. As the uh, uh, you know, who was that? Kenny Rogers <laughs> one one thing, and they just never seem to understand how this works. Yeah, the one. Uh, so, what makes you think that if they had traded him, that we wouldn't have heard his story and they wouldn't have asked for the third party investigation anyway? Well, I mean, when we asked Trent Williams, why have you been silent this whole time? Like, like to me, it made no sense that he was quiet the whole time. If you want to trade, you speak out. We see this over and over again with, with NBA players. I mean, Jalen Ramsey effectively went down this path, you know, and so on. And so. You got you know that, that's where you apply the pressure. He never did. So when asked why, he said that it was because out of respect for Dan Snyder. To me, that suggests like it makes no sense that he also thinks the organization is terrible, but Dan Snyder is cool. That 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 that, that that's also weird. But if that's his mentality, then I guess I would imagine he would just sort of you know who knows what the other what the other city would be asking him. Some of these questions, for sure, but from that from that city's perspective, the story is more about hey, this team just got Trent Williams. What does that mean? So I don't think they're as focused on it the way that we were. So there'll be a little bit. He'll say something, but it wouldn't be to that degree, I would imagine. Maybe things eventually come out. You know, whether it's somebody, a local reporter, or Schefter, or somebody. But ultimately, I don't think it comes out like this. And even if it does, the story's already over. I don't really know why. I mean, what, I, I guess I don't know what the point of the. The third party would be at that point, unless the Redskins are just like they want their name cleared, I guess, or something. If that, if that's the thing, but like I said, Trent, I think Trent Williams and his comments in the locker room only made it worse for their for in terms of how they're viewed, and that doesn't happen if he's not there. Yeah, I I think that someone would have asked him, you know, 
why? Why, you know, did you want to get traded? I think it would have come out. I think the Redskins would have, yes, for what, what you just said would have been the answer, that they would have felt like they needed to clear their name, and they can't do it on their own anymore, um, and they would have asked for the third-party investigation. I think everything that happened, starting with that Thursday presser out there with him, would have happened in a new place. I could be wrong. Um, I just think it all would have happened. I think Trent wanted to tell his story. Um, and s- certainly not getting traded, you know, uh, accelerated that. But eventually that was going to come out. And the Redskins were also based on just the, you know, just sort of the the indirect um, implications that there was a medical uh, issue with Trent Williams, that they were probably going to f- try to figure out a way to to clear their name to a certain degree. You know, the the, the ultimately for, for me, and not, you know, I, I, I said I'm ready to move on. I, I guess it's because their arrogance, their incompetence, their low-rent behavior isn't anything new. Like, I would have never ex- I would have never expected them to have handled this with class and with dignity and with you know anybody but themselves you know in mind it's it's what we've seen over and over again in similar sticky situations whether it was you know throwing Kirk you know throwing Kirk Cousins under the bus you know after they made that shitty offer and tried to make him look greedy whether it was the anonymous leaks to the post about McLuhan you know this is what they do this is who they are as people um, so that part of it doesn't surprise me. I do really wonder still, and I know that he doesn't want people to lose their jobs and he doesn't want to throw anybody under the bus, but he had already thrown everybody under the bus with that Thursday press conference and with the additional conversations that he's had. I just think it would have been in his best interest to let that investigation go forward. Uh, ultimately, even if there were major pieces he didn't, you know, elaborate on or didn't even talk about that may have made the team look a little bit better, the bottom line is it would have taken a year plus. He would have been in a new place. People wouldn't have cared anymore. And doesn't matter what comes out in a third party investigation about this. More people than not are going to are going to say the team was at fault for it. You know, they could be completely cleared like they were in the McLuhan situation with respect to, you know, uh, pay uh, uh, the the remaining money that he was going after because he didn't think he should have been fired with cause. It doesn't matter. People still think McLuhan like they fired him unjustly, even though we had a third party investigation and an arbitrator who said, no, actually, they were justified in firing him with cause. Nobody even remembers that. You know, part of it. It came a year and a half later. That's why I think Trent would have been much better off, and the NFLPA should have convinced him to not drop the third-party investigation. And the McLuhan case is a good example of what I was saying before about winning the battle and losing the war. That's right. They came. They came out and said, or excuse me, somebody somebody gave the Washington Post, you know, those those, those really rough comments about McLuhan and that sort of put a pin on the, on that story one that they ultimately came out like you said to be to win but but they but they were team losers like i, I i've used this before i hopefully i've not used this before on, on your podcast you know the, the difference between the washington nationals and the washington redskins and how they handle pr is striking but the nationals made bryce harper a, a bad offer contractually however but when it was initially framed to the public it was deemed as a as a total number, whatever it was, ten for three hundred or whatever the exact numbers were, three hundred million, was was certainly a reasonable offer and a very good offer, 
for what ultimately he did sign for. So when he did sign with the Phillies, the perception was made, wow, he didn't even take that much more money to go to a division rival. Wow, that guy is greedy as heck. Except that after he took it, oh, by the way, the Nationals offer was crap. You guys just were told something for weeks on end to create a narrative that makes it look like Bryce Harper was the greedy one. The Redskins are the literal opposite. So much of this Trent Williams situation with some with some good PR could have easily been framed as Trent Williams is the, the issue more on Trent Williams, especially when you got to things like wait, you didn't go see a doctor on your own for years. Like that's such a an odd dynamic. We don't know the whole story. He's you know we'll see what comes out, but you know stuff like that. He's been he has been injured in the past. They did make him the top tackle. Sure, he's not number one now, but he was. That doesn't you know, that doesn't sound like an organization that's trying to do him wrong and so on. They could have done so many things, but they I don't know. They just are very, very bad at, at these type of elements. Same thing with Kirk Cousins. I thought by the, you know, that Kirk Cousins was disingenuous when he kept coming out and saying he really wanted to sign a contract to stay here, but because of the way they had framed it from the beginning and Bruce Allen comes out there and gives that mini press conference where he actually he just made a statement on camera where he says that they'd make Kirk Cousins a great offer to, you know, would make him the highest paid guy or whatever he was saying. It was just like, what? Well, what are we talking about? This doesn't make any sense. I, they are just bad at that part of this game. And unfortunately, while that, a lot of that has nothing to do with wins and losses on the field, it does have a lot to do with the perception. And there, then it actually does have something to do with wins and losses because the agents are out there, other free agents are out there. They constantly see the chaos going on and, you know, if you're if you're down between like the Redskins and some other team for a free agent, you've got to be thinking to yourself, wait, do, do I want to be part of this over and over, this thing that happens over and over again? Probably not. Let me go somewhere else. So if they just do themselves no no help by, by, by these actions, no matter what a future third party says or, or anything. It just looks, you know, even if Trent Williams is, a, is I don't want to say at fault because of the cancer, but you know, even if on somewhat he was saying was, you know, there's more pushback to come. It doesn't matter. They are already the ones that look bad for reasons you said, and um, it, it, so much of it just seems like unforced errors to me. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on from that because that's really w- what I wanted to do right from the beginning, but we really can't move on from it because there was so much that was added to the story since we did the podcast on Friday. The, to me, the rest of the way is about Dwayne Haskins and young players. Uh, we talked during the open of this podcast about the LSU-Alabama game, Ben, and you know, Joe Burrow now, in my view, is going to be the number one pick in the draft. Um, of course, there's a lot of time between now and March for that to change, um, but it makes it more imperative than ever. I've thought, I felt that it's been very important anyway to find out what you had in Haskins as much as you could this year because of the potential of one of the best quarterback draft classes um, in recent memory. Uh, what do you think they're thinking the rest of the way? First of all, as it relates to Haskins playing, are we now at the point where we're going to hear later on today from Callahan that he is going to be the starting quarterback for the final seven games? You would like to think so. I, I can't even – I mean, again, this goes sort of to the PR element. Obviously, the development of Wade Haskins goes well beyond PR. They actually need him to start looking like a guy who can – handle those duties that they can sort of pencil in to be the starter for next year, even if it's just like, hey, he's still learning, but like, you know, we see development. And then, look, I think he was margin of error reasonable against Buffalo, considering the first career start on the road against a tough defense with some weather. And 
and so on. He, you know, he did some reasonable things. There's clearly a lot to work on, but okay, there's something to, to you know, so, so, some sign of okay, that, that was a lot better than those relief performances. The, it, you know, if this season ends with Dwayne Haskins, he doesn't have to turn it on the way Baker Mayfield did at the end of last year, where he becomes a national hero. But like he just starts, you know, they can start running the fuller offense by the by the final games and. You know, he's throwing the ball down the field, and there's some signs of hey between him and McLaurin and Darius Geis, you know, there, there's actually some some interesting things here. That, that the season, this one that looks is an incredible downer right now, could actually end up, you know, with like a little bit of a smile could. because of because of that, and and that's why like it's so imperative to me that he plays at this point. I have not been pushing for Dwayne Haskins to play, but since they've already thrown him out there to now go backwards would be nuts, which is what made Callahan's comment the other day just insane. The idea that you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't just flat out say that Dwayne Haskins is going to be your starter, and instead you might go back to a guy who hasn't even performed that well and is a free agent at the end of the year. I mean, get out of here. Like, it's, it's so weird. So whether, they, whether, whether he comes out and says Haskins is the starter of the year or not, who the heck knows, but logically that's the only play to make at this point. There are other guys on the team. I'm not discounting their play, and you want to get a good look at everybody, and, and Haskins' limitations right now may not allow that, but that doesn't really matter. You have to move forward with him and, and see see what you have because, like you said, in this draft, they appear poised to be in a position to get, you know, if Joe Burrow goes one, that means Tua would hypothetically be sitting there, and that's what everybody walked into this draft thinking about, plus Justin Herbert and even some other guys. Beyond that, then you have you know the chase you know chase young just to go a different direction. But you know a quarterback is sitting there for them in this draft, likely, and you have to at least consider it until you know for sure what you have with Wayne Haskins. Yeah, um, that's my view. I, you know, I would have played him right from the beginning, right when I realized the season was completely out of control, which would have been you know going into week four or week five at the worst case. Because I don't know how you know if Case Keenum doesn't get concussed in the Minneapolis in the Minnesota game, and then he's probably the starter in Buffalo, and he might be the the starter this week against the Jets. Still, who knows? Um, you know, thank God he got into that game in Buffalo because you know I mean I don't wish injury on anybody, but without the concussion, I'm not sure he would have played in Buffalo. And now you'd be entering that situation that I just didn't think made any sense at all, which is the possibility that you aren't going to learn anything about Dwayne Haskins before what could be um, the best quarterback draft since 1983. Um, and, and this goes, by the way, like to the point of like the Callahan, you know, sitting there as the interim coach. Like, you know, it boggles the mind to think that the organization would tell an interim coach he could have the job and have total control over the roster and starting lineup. At least, you know, fine, he wants to start. I'm just making this up. He wants to start Wes Martin instead of Eric Flowers. Okay, fine, whatever. You want to not start Dwayne Haskins? Get out of here. (laughs) You have to at some point. No, no, you, you don't get say over that interim coach. So, like, the fact that that's even, like, a thing that came out the other day, supposedly, like, you know, that would just that, that would hurt my brain that the Redskins would even think that way, even if we have sort of low, uh, you know, low estimation of, of their decision-making. It just seems impossible. But Callahan is so old school, I get it. He's, like, you know, wants to show he can win, and, and having Haskins out there probably precludes him from doing that. Of course, Colt McCoy probably gave him a better chance to win in Buffalo. He didn't go that way, blah, blah, blah. So... 
No, nothing makes sense. I don't know. I've, I, after seeing Haskins, I don't think that either one of those two guys gives him, you know, uh, that much of a of a of a chance, uh, much better of a chance to win than Haskins does. But what do I know? Um, thanks, Ben. Appreciate it as always. Yeah, man. All right. Thanks to Ben uh, for jumping on with us. A um, lot of reporting on the Trent Williams thing uh, last week, and. Trent, you know, became a guy that, you know, was talking, you know, and, and we heard a lot of details. And I, I, my, my, I tweeted this out over the weekend. Trent lost lots of money, but much more importantly, he's alive. That's the most important thing. The Redskins' contract cost for his absence probably will amount to nothing. But much more importantly, they look incompetent and petty once again. His side might have holes. Their side's trivial because of their past. And now we move on. You know, the next time, really, the Trent Williams story, I think, will become significant is in March when they try to trade him and we find out what they get for him because he's never playing in this organization again. Now, the other part of the story could reemerge that the Redskins are trying to get his contract not to accrue um, and therefore to toll to next year so that he still has two years left, and that would become newsworthy as well because then the Redskins would really be trying to stick it to him moving forward. Uh, Look, I've said this a million times. They're not very bright. They make up for it for being arrogant as hell. Um, It's just a terrible combination of, of two things, of two characteristics in a business or in people. And this is why they continue to wallow um, in the bottom and play in the bottom pool of professional sports organizations. All right, let's go around the NFL because there were a lot of good games yesterday. The biggest plays and the clutch moments. It's time to go around the NFL. All right, we got to start with the Sunday night game. Um, And I'd be totally lying to you if I didn't say that I was sitting there last night watching Cousins and the Vikings and rooting like hell for the Vikings. I am. But, you know, for those of you that just, like, get after me and say, why don't you just move to Minnesota or do a a podcast on the Vikings? When Mark Rippon played quarterback for the Cleveland Browns one year when they were in in a playoff race, I was rooting so hard for Rippon. When Art Monk was playing for the Jets, when Gary Clark was playing for the Cardinals, when when Dexter Manley was playing for the Cardinals, I rooted for those guys too. Well, they were champions. Yeah, they were. They were champions. But when I have favorite players from my favorite team and they go on, especially if they go on when it's not their choice, you know, it wasn't Gary Clark's choice, wasn't Art Monk's choice, wasn't Mark Rippon's choice, you know, wasn't Dexter's choice, was not Kirk Cousins' choice. The Redskins never made him a legitimate offer to stay. God, that always frustrates me. I know I've said it before recently. When people say, well, he chose to leave. No, he didn't. They never made him an offer that he could have ever accepted. Um, Yeah, I was rooting for him last night. He played well. You know, it was not one of his best games. Um, It was a take-what-the-defense-gives-you kind of a game, and they ran the football really well, which is something they didn't do in Kansas City last week. Dalvin Cook's really good. Really good. He leads the league in rushing. 
And I don't know if you've been following this, Aaron, but this is a big-time rushing season for the NFL for some of these big backs. Right now, you've got like five, six, seven backs on pace for you know 1,200-plus yards. Um, last year, you only had uh, three backs with 1,200-plus yards, Gurley, Barkley, and Elliott. This year, right now, you've got, I mean, Cook at 991 through 10 games. He's going to rush for more than 1,200. McCaffrey at 989 through 9 games. Chubb at 900-plus through 9 games. Derrick Henry's at 832 through 10 games. Pretty good chance to run for 1,200-plus. Fournette, the same thing. The rookie in Oakland's over 800 yards rushing Mm -hmm. through 9 games. Elliott's close to 800 yards through 9 games. The guy in Indy, Marlon Mack, you got a lot of guys that are going to rush for 1,200-plus yards this year, unless you get a lot of injuries down the stretch. Um, Dalvin Cook is really, really good. He runs so hard, exceptionally hard. Really good vision, great pass catcher out of the backfield. I love some of you. Some of you are just so dumb. Seriously. And I'm not very bright. But when you tell me that Kirk threw for 300 and something yards a few weeks ago throwing checkdowns and last night well he didn't throw any interceptions because he threw nothing but checkdowns to Dalvin Cook. Do you know the difference between a screen pass and a checkdown? By the way, do you know against zone teams and especially how many quarterbacks throw a lot of checkdowns? Cuz that's what's open. Kirk actually played a really smart football game last night. Didn't make any throws that put him in jeopardy in a tight game. One turnover last night could have really put them in a bind. He made consistent third down throws to move the chains. Um, hit a couple of, uh, of, of big ones to to, uh, to digs. But Dallas was playing zone um, uh, the, the whole night, playing you know a, a, d- a deep guy or two. Um, it was tough to get anything downfield like he had done for four weeks against the Giants, the Eagles, and the Lions, and the and the uh, and the Redskins. Well, the Redskins uh, really played. Um, the Redskins couldn't stop the run that night against them. Uh, I'll tell you what Minnesota really struggles with, though. Sometimes defensively, they don't get off the field very well. In fact, I think I was looking at their um, third down numbers, and this is going to hurt them. Their third and long defense is going to hurt them. Um, They gave up four third and 11 or longers last night against the Cowboys. They did the same. There were a couple of big third downs they gave up against the Chiefs. Um, The Lions did the same thing in their game against them. Uh, The Lions went seven for 11, I think, on third down, and a lot of them were third and longs. Um, this is, you know, something that I've heard Zimmer talk about. They, they were really good against the run last night. They weren't last week. Gave up eight and a half yards against the Chiefs last week. And then last night uh, against Elliott, they totally shut Zeke Elliott down. But I thought that Dak Prescott played one of the best games throwing the football I've ever seen Dak Prescott play. He was incredible last night. Threw for 400 yards, three touchdowns. The one interception came on the Hail Mary at the end. Um, it was a really good Sunday night football game. Uh, Minnesota wins their 7-3. and three. I am still not a believer in Minnesota, just so everybody's clear on this. I was not a believer before the season started. I'm not a believer now. I think Green Bay's better. I think the Saints are better. I think the 49ers are better. I think the Seahawks are better. 
Um, I don't think the Vikings are going to make a deep run in the postseason. I think they've got a decent chance of getting there now, and I didn't pick them to be in the playoffs when the season started. But they still have a brutal schedule. They still th- uh, play three primetime games. You know, Kirk on primetime. I mean, I think he's 7-12 and 12 now on primetime. It's not like he's 1-19. and 19. Um, But they play Seattle on a Monday night game, Green Bay on a Monday night game, and I think they play a Sunday night game against the Chargers on the road, which will be a Minnesota crowd. Their fans are really traveling this year. Anyway, that was a really good game last night. Um, The game uh, at 1 o'clock between the Titans and the Chiefs was an excellent game. I think I already mentioned this in the podcast. If I'm being repetitive, um, uh, then I'm trying to be, I guess, now, if I think I mentioned it earlier in the podcast. But I can't remember, actually, if I mentioned it on the radio show or not. Did I mention that Ryan Tannehill now has won three or four games, all of them in comeback fashion in the fourth quarter? I don't think you mentioned it on the podcast. Okay, so I mentioned that on radio. Um, Ryan Tannehill, three for four in his starts, and all three uh, wins have been in the fourth quarter. Um, he is one of those guys like that might – I always kind of liked Tannehill, actually, because I liked his mobility. Um they the Chiefs had problems with with field goal attempts. The guy uh, Harrison Butker had a a field goal to make it thirty five to twenty seven that they botched the snap on and and went intentional grounding. Colquitt the punter threw a pass that was called uh, intentional grounding, and then they had uh, the last field goal to force overtime blocked. Great block off the edge. Thought it was offsides, but actually the NFL did a really nice job of putting out a video and explaining where the line of scrimmage was and that it was perfectly timed by the outside guy who blocked the field goal. And, man, the, the AFC is a little bit muddled right now with the exception of Baltimore and New England, I guess. You know, the Chiefs in Mahomes' first game back, which was yesterday, threw for 450 and three touchdowns, by the way. So good. But the Chiefs are 6-4. and four. You know, the Raiders in that division are more than alive at 5-4. and four. They're in it at 5-4. and four. You know, you've got that AFC South now that has the Titans at five and five. The Colts lost yesterday to fall to five and four. Uh, the Texans are six and three. The Steelers now. Uh, you know, I think Tomlin, the, the the job he's doing is phenomenal. They they beat the they beat the Rams. Um, I, the, the AFC is just muddled. I, I'm sort of losing my train of thought. Anyway, I, I, you know, Cleveland beat Buffalo. Who, who are the playoff teams going to be? New England and Baltimore, I think, are givens. After that, I would think Kansas City's a given. But they're not definitely a given. I mean, if Mahomes throws for 450, they're going to win more of these games than not. They play in Mexico City next Monday night against the Chargers. They have the Raiders at home. They, have, they still have to go to Foxborough. They have the, you know, they have the Bears on the road. That shouldn't be hard for them, right? Kansas City at the Bears. Um, anyway, the, the AFC is interesting. Uh, meantime, the NFC game late, the snow game at Lambeau, was awesome. I, however, got so frustrated uh, during that game that I left and went to the movies. And this is the God's honest truth. All right. The play that really sent me into a complete, um, I would say, unusual fit of rage because uh, I usually don't get that worked up during the games that aren't Redskin games. But I did bet the Panthers plus five and a half yesterday. And do you know the play I'm talking about? Packers backed up at their inside their own 10-yard line. Yes. Aaron Rodgers gets pressured, almost oh, yeah. intentionally no, did, grounds the ball. This. Yes. And yes. Gerald McCoy yes. 
has a textbook hit exactly the way the referees would not, coach it in a in a seminar not on just, how to hit a quarterback. Not just a textbook hit, but all, also spun off as he was going down. Did everything he could to not land on him, not do anything. And Jerome Boger throws the flag that Aaron Rodgers catches before it hits the ground. 15 yards, unnecessary roughness for the exact reason that it wasn't, that it was not landing with full weight on the quarterback. It was textbook by McCoy. And that call just sent me into a – I just can – it drives me nuts watching football on Sunday and seeing these calls. If you're not going to allow the quarterback to get hit, let's change the entirety of the game. Let's make sure that they're not allowed to be hit, that it's two-hand touch or flag. I think flag's hard. You know, because of the the equipment and it gets moved around, and you could probably you know situate it to, to where it's harder to get to grab the flag. I, if you're gonna if you're if you're gonna legislate hitting the quarterback out of the game, let's do it. So we're not sitting here outraged every Sunday over a totally benign hit, a totally a hit that has zero chance. If you're reviewing it after the fact of being called unnecessary roughness. And it changed the entire game. It gave Green Bay a first down instead of Carolina first down, probably in Green Bay territory down 14-10 with a chance to take the lead before the end of the first half. Instead, Green Bay got all the way down. And by the way, Carolina, ball don't lie, gets the stop on the final play of the first half. But it just completely changed the game in the moment, and I did watch the end of the first half. I said I was getting up right away to leave. I waited until the end of the first half, and then I left. I did watch the game because I recorded it very early this morning, and I love the snow at Lambeau Field. And I hate the going for two down 24 to 10. Some of you tweeted me, and I saw that this morning. Um, so here's what the analytics guys say. They say if you're down 14, I've explained, explained this in the past a little bit, but it is a little bit confusing. I understand that. Essentially, the, the analytics people will say if you are down 14 and you score a touchdown to draw within eight, you should go for two right there, which is what Carolina did. Down 24-10, they scored. It's 24-16. They went for two. And a lot of you are like, why are they going for two there? Uh, now they're down eight instead of seven. Well, because the analytics people hate overtime. They, th- they view overtime as a coin flip proposition. And they view the two-point conversion as better than a 50-50 proposition. So therefore, they view if you miss it the first time, you'll get it the second time to tie the game and force overtime. But if you make it the first time, then you can kick to win the game when you score the next touchdown. Now, there's a lot of things that aren't considered in all of the analytics conversation. Like, is it really a 50, better than 50-50 proposition, the two-point conversion? Not for all teams. The context of the game. Uh, did you see the weather? It was bad weather. You know, now maybe kicking was a, a risk in that particular situation as well. I just personally don't believe the two-point conversion for every team is a 50-50 or better proposition. I think it's closer to like a third of the time they make it. It seems to me. What are the two-point numbers this year? I, I, I think I saw it was about 48%. Is it 48%? Yes. That's, okay. what I, that's what I saw on Twitter last night. So anyway, that's um, what they say. In that particular situation, I would have kicked it with, by the way, a pretty good kicker. 
uh, and taking my chances that if I scored again that I would either maybe think about going for the win then or kicking there for overtime. Of course, the analytics people just heard that and said, well, if you're going to go for the win, you should have gone for it the first time. Right, that, that's the other part of yeah. this is that if you do miss it, then you you know what you have to get the second yeah. time as opposed to if you go the exactly. second time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. But, you know, the pressure of the second one on both the defense and the offense is different than the context, the pressure context of the first one. Yeah. For someone like us, though, th- this is getting interesting. If more teams, and we're seeing this not just in pros but in college, how does that affect the number? How does that affect the spread? It doesn't. Doesn't at all. I mean, we're, we're seeing it affect spreads, though. I, I do wonder, just like... Give me an example of where it would affect the spread. Well, I mean, I don't know about... Well, we saw it where someone, instead of just going for the extra point to make it a seven-point game, went for two uh, last week. What, what game was it? Was it the Memphis game? Yeah, yeah but if the, the two-point conversion is 50-50, it's not going to affect the point spread or the total. Yeah, but if people are... The the fourth down analytics has a better chance of impacting the total. Of course, yes. No, I'm not so much talking about the total. I'm talking about, you know, we think about the seven as the key numbers and stuff, and the more and more people go for two. Oh, well, it's not going to change the point spreads of the games, but it could change where you buy your half points as a better. yes. And therefore, I guess ultimately it, it could does change. change the spread. Yes, the, the, instead the, yeah, of the, the looking at the six and a half, you seven, still have mostly three sevens, tens, of fourteens. But know. I do wonder, as if this does start to get more uh, pervasive, if yeah. it does start to at least a little bit, we start seeing more sixes instead of sevens, that sort of thing. <sighs> anyway, um, good game, Carolina and Green Bay. I think Carolina is a good team. I think they're a really good football team. I think they've got a really good pass rush. I like Kyle Allen a lot. I like their receivers. You know, McCaffrey is spectacular. He's really, really good. That MVP vote right now is Russell Wilson 1, McCaffrey 2, right? Are those the odds? I would think those are the odds right now. Who else would be in the mix? Mahomes Mahomes can't be in the mix right now after missing two or three games. He could get back into it. It, it was Wilson and Lamar were well ahead. Oh, Jackson, of course, yes. yeah. Yes, we're well ahead. I, Where's I Bo? Would you have a, do you have something up right now? Are yeah. you looking at Yeah, I'm Where's Bo? Where, I just had a curiosity. Is Bosa even in the top ten? Of MVP? Yeah. Right now, on this is according to FanDuel Sportsbook. Most of the Vegas uh, sites don't have it up until after all the games are played. Lamar Jackson is plus 250, and Russell Wilson is also plus 250. Aaron Rodgers is plus 600. Deshaun Watson is plus 600. Then you go down to Christian McCaffrey, Dak Prescott, and Patrick Mahomes wow. plus 1,200. Interesting. I guess Carolina needs to win a little bit more. And, uh, and you're going to naturally go towards a quarterback yeah. before a running back. What's yeah. the la- when, who was the last running back to win the MVP? Was it Tomlinson or Alexander? Uh, or did, Peter, did Peterson win it? Oh, it, well, Adrian Peterson did win an MVP, and that would have been after. Yeah, that that, that would have been, been after like both of them, eleven or twelve. So yes, like, yes, I yeah. believe it was uh, Peterson. I will. You check. probably just hit on the last three running backs to win the MVP. Yeah, it was. Yep, Peterson, Tomlinson, Alexander were the last three running backs. Well done, Aaron. Good job. I'm here for some reason. Um, other games from yesterday of significance. Um, the Ravens rolled. I mean, we mentioned the backfield at one point in that game. Um, the Browns sort of saved their season, at least in the moment, uh, with a home win, another home loss. And they would, I mean, they were turning on them already. I can't stand Mayfield, by the way. And how about, you know, the Falcons going to New Orleans and beating the Saints as a big underdog? It's a big win for them. 
Uh, and the Steelers. Uh, you know, I've mentioned, I've mentioned Tomlin. He's doing a hell of a job, a hell of a job. And the four and the Rams can't score an offensive touchdown. There, how many games now have they not scored touchdowns in? The 49er game, did they score an offensive touchdown? Maybe they did. But my God, they they they, they have been hit and miss this year offensively. Uh, no offensive touchdowns yesterday. I was I was thinking that the 49er game was a game in which they didn't score an offensive touchdown, but I think they did actually. Now that I think about it, uh, the Steelers are interesting now. You know, they get the Browns twice and the Bengals. Could they make a little run? The Cardinals. You know, they got a game with the Bills that could be a huge game in the wild card race. Could they get back into the AFC North race? I don't know. The Ravens look awfully tough now, but the Ravens have some games coming up, man. How about the Ravens 49ers on December first? How about that game? That's going to be fun. In Baltimore. Who do the Redskins play on December 1st? I hope It's a 1 o'clock game, I'm sure. I'd love to be able to miss that and go to the Ravens game. They play at the Panthers on December 1st. Uh, all right. Um, if you want to listen to us on, a, on our app, we've got an app now. You can get it uh, on your iPhone in the App Store or on your Android in the Google Store. Let us know what you think. You don't have to listen to the show that way, uh, but you get my Twitter feed. You get the show's Twitter feed. You get the show's Facebook feed. Um, along with the show being right there every day and access to all of the old shows. So we do have an app now. Um, it seems to be uh, really easy. I've got it on my phone. Um, no real issues with the fast forward. I, I, again, if you have any issues, let me know. No one's let me, I've gotten a lot of good feedback and only one or two uh, you know, things that we looked into. We weren't getting it out early enough. I think we fixed that issue. Listen to us on the app if you want to. Um, doesn't mean you have to stop listening to us on any of the podcast platforms or on the website if that's just easier for you. It's just giving you another way to listen to the show. All right, let's finish up the show with some weekend DVR. Did you have a busy weekend? Don't worry. We've got you covered. It's time for weekend DVR. All right. Um, Maryland lost to Ohio State on Saturday, 73-14. to 14. They got out gained 705-139. to 139. Ohio State kicked an onside kick in the first quarter. Really cool onside kick, too. They sort of floated it up in the air with a receiver coming down. They caught it. It was almost like a pass. Um, I like Mike Loxley. I'm not going to bail on Mike Loxley. We're we're a month and a half removed from thinking, oh, my God, Maryland beat Syracuse. They're 2-0. You know, they got a shot to be a really good football team. Maybe two months removed from that. Um, but they've now been outscored uh, in their two toughest – well, actually, throw Minnesota into the mix. Throw Michigan. They Penn State beat them 59-0. Minnesota beat them 52-10. Michigan beat them 38-7. And Ohio State beat them 73-14 and had 705 yards. Loxley comes on the radio show with me, and I asked him on Friday – to really sort of describe rather than just saying, hey, you know, the big difference between Ohio State and Maryland is Ohio State has a lot more talent. But sort of explain, you know, where the talent is, what the difference in the talent is from an Ohio State versus, you know, even a team like Indiana or Purdue in the Big Ten. And one of the things he said, he said, look, they have better team speed, but he said, we have good team speed. And Maryland does. They've got some really good athletes at skill position players. They've got some NFL players. You know, at running back and at wide receiver and probably on defense in their secondary. But where he said it really shows up is along the offensive and defensive lines. Size, speed, athleticism, strength. And then where it really shows up 
is, he said, our number ones, you know, aren't Ohio State's number ones, but our number ones can hold up against most teams, but we got to build up our depth. Ohio State, when they lose players, they come back in with more five-star recruits. It's one five-star recruit after another. And if we lose a starter that's a four-star recruit, we may be coming in, and he didn't say this, I'm paraphrasing, we may be coming in with a guy that didn't even have any stars next to his name. So that's where the emphasis is for Mike Loxley. They lost a big-time recruit during the game. You saw that, right? Yes, I did. Uh, you want to tell us about it? Uh, I don't know much about him. He was uh, he just, I believe he was a four-star recruit. And look, you have a bad season. You're going to lose recruits like that. And the one thing, if you do want to be alarmed by this season for Loxley, is that the one thing we thought he would be able to do is come in and lock down the DMV and lock down the recruits, and right now, that's not happening. No, it's not. Right now, I think they have like the ninth or 10th best projected recruiting class in the Big Ten. Yes. So, if he doesn't get the players from home to stay at home... It's going to be really, really difficult for Maryland to, rec- uh, to uh, compete in the Big Ten. And ultimately, it would be his undoing down the road, more likely than not. Because I think, really, when you got Mike Loxley, you were getting a guy that you thought had a chance to be a good football coach. But more importantly, you got a guy that you thought was going to own recruiting in this area. And it's a good football area. And you were going to start keeping a lot of these guys home, and you were going to be able to stack up talent-wise. Maybe not with Ohio State and Penn State and Michigan, but definitely with Purdue and Indiana and maybe even you know Michigan State, who doesn't consistently recruit at the Ohio State-Penn State level. You know, Sort of like what they were in the ACC for many years. They weren't Florida State, but they at times were – Better than Wake and better than NC State and better than, you know, North Carolina and better than Georgia Tech. You know, right now in the Big Ten, you got to get to the point where you're recruiting well enough to be better than Indiana, better than Rutgers, on par with Michigan State, better than Illinois, better than Purdue, you know, better than Northwestern, you know, on par occasionally with Iowa and Wisconsin. I don't know if you're ever going to be Ohio State or Penn State, but right now, uh, you're one and six in the Big Ten and three and seven overall. While we're talking about Ohio State, have you seen the line for the Rutgers game? Fifty-two. Fifty-two and a half, and the total is fifty-eight and a half. <laughs> they, I'll take they, Ohio they, State in the under. It's going to be a fifty-five-three game. I'll, t- I'll take Ohio State in the under. Um, so anyway, bad loss, uh, expected loss. I didn't play the game. I, I actually thought I almost almost played Maryland before the kick. Do you know what Maryland does better than anybody? They return kickoffs really well. Javon Leak almost had another touchdown on a kickoff return in that game. He, Of the two, McFarland and Leak, I think Leak's going to be the better pro. That's just my uh, two cents on the running. I think Javon Leak's going to be a really good NFL pro. Ty Johnson you know, is playing now in Detroit, especially with Carryon Johnson out. He's their kick returner. He's also getting a lot of time at running back. I think Javon Leak's going to be uh, in the pros as well. I think McFarland will be a pro too. I think Leak's going to be the better pro. Just a guess on that. Um, while we're at it, uh, Maryland basketball had a really interesting game Saturday. Did you go? I did not. I didn't either. Uh, almost did at the last second. Decided not to. We had friends in town. Um, but anyway, uh, they played Rhode Island at home. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the line, Maryland was only an 11-point favorite. I was like, this might be a tough game. And it was. 
They ended up winning the game by 18, I think, but the or 16. But they were down 12 in the first half. Mm-hmm. They got punched in the mouth physically by a Rhode Island team that had some experience and that had some tough players. Uh, number 10 for them for Rhode Island, Langevine, I think his name is. That dude can play. That is a really good basketball player. Their point guard was really good. I think Rhode Island will be pretty good in the in the A-10. Maryland came back. They they ran. They've been running here in these first two games, getting easy buckets. Cowan was exceptional in the second half. Morsell defensively was it was exceptional in the second half, playing essentially one of the two forward spots. He was he was really your number four on that in that small lineup with Sticks and Morsell and Wiggins and Cowan and Ayala. That's their best lineup, the smaller lineup, I think. He's playing the Twins a lot, um, the Mitchell guys a lot. I thought that was a really good win for Maryland. I thought they really responded well to a team that came out and tried to bully them a little bit. It's not always been Maryland's best matchup against teams that bully them a little bit. I mean, will you ever forget the West Virginia game in the round of, of 32 in the tournament mm. when they literally beat up Mo, uh, Mello. You know, Mello Trimble? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a good win. I think it's one of those wins that'll look even better down the road. But Maryland came back and they really did it on defense and they ran better offense. And Wiggins got it going. Wiggins had 13 rebounds in the game. Uh, it's knocked down a couple threes after missing um, some threes in the opener. But that was a good win for Maryland. The Caps won again. My God, they are the hottest team in the league. They they don't lose. The Caps do not lose. They've had 18 games, two losses, two regulation losses. 29 uh, points, best record in the league. Um, They beat Vegas at home the other night. They play Arizona at home tonight. Um, This is one, I mean, look, the NHL, you get to the playoffs, who knows? Didn't basically every top seed in the East lose last year and in the West? Um, So you never know when you get to the postseason, but they are an exceptional, exceptional team. All right, one more thing uh, before we say goodbye for the day. College football rankings. Uh, the Alabama-LSU game was huge because I think LSU would have been in still pretty good shape if they had lost the game to potentially snag a playoff spot. But everybody has pointed to the fact that if Bama lost that game going into it, they didn't have the non-conference schedule or even the SEC schedule to you know beat out other one-loss teams and sure, certainly not anybody that finished undefeated. Because they opened with Duke, they played New Mexico State, they had Southern Miss, they have not played a great uh, SEC schedule, they still have Auburn in the Iron Bowl left. Uh, On the road, not going to be an easy game for them. Um, But Alabama, uh, I believe, is still in decent shape to get to the playoff if they win out and they don't participate in the SEC title game, because it's going to be LSU versus, more likely than not, Georgia at this point in the SEC title game. Auburn, by the way, is a very interesting uh, team the rest of the way. They play Georgia this week, and they finish with Alabama, both of those games at home. They could literally, as a two-loss team, be in the conversation if they were to win both of those games because the one team that you might consider for that fourth spot, the Pac-12 champion, Oregon at that point, Auburn beat head-to-head. But anyway, more likely than not, not going to happen. Alabama, to me... Right now, it comes down to if they run the table and they win their remaining games, which includes the Iron Bowl at Auburn, they will be put side-by-side with a one-loss Pac-12 champion, Oregon or Utah, for the fourth spot. That assumes LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson are your first three. Right. That's my. Right now, that's the favorite for that. 
And it would come down to Alabama or Oregon or Alabama or Utah. Oregon, I think, would get it over Alabama. I don't think Utah would get it over Alabama. And my reasoning is that Utah's non-con schedule isn't great either, and their one loss wouldn't be as good as Alabama's one loss to LSU. And Utah would be a conference champion, I understand that. And by the way, Utah passes the eye test for me. I think they're really good. But Alabama passes the eye test too. But that's that's how I think it's going to play out. Penn State obviously could run the table and be in the conversation. Um, you know, Minnesota at nine and zero. What Minis- about what about an Oklahoma Big Twelve champion? Nope. Okay. I don't see it. I, I, I think I agree with you, but I think that at least needs to be put into play as well. A one-loss conference champ going up against an Alabama at large. I look, Oklahoma was lucky to survive the other night. Iowa oh, sure. State and Iowa. To, uh, Oklahoma has at times passed the eye test for me. Yes. I thought they were much better, and then recently they haven't played very well. Because that, d- that would include two wins over Baylor yes. and a win over Oklahoma State ba- as well. Baylor's not very good at nine and zero. No, they should have lost Saturday. Nine and zero. They're nine and zero. Minnesota's going to be an underdog in two of their three remaining games even before they get to a potential Big Ten title game. They're underdogs this week at Iowa, and they'll be an underdog to Wisconsin when they play Wisconsin. It was a really good win for them over Penn State. Um, Really cool to see a team like Minnesota and the excitement in Minneapolis for that team. Um, uh, But they're not going to – in fact, I'll I'll go out on a limb and and tell you that I think Wisconsin's going to be in the Big Ten title game. I think Minnesota loses to Iowa, loses to Wisconsin. Wisconsin gets a tiebreaker over Minnesota, ends up in the title game against Ohio State, gets beat like a drum. Ohio State's undefeated. LSU, look, LSU-Georgia will be a hell of a game in an SEC title game. It will be a great game. Uh, But I like LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, and then I think it just comes down to the Pac-12 champion. If it's Oregon, I think it's Oregon. If it's Utah, then I think Alabama with one loss would get in, even though I think Utah is an exceptional team too. I think they're really good. And just because of people in the area, yes, if Penn State happened to magically run the table, they would be a factor as They'll well. They'll be a 17-point underdog in Columbus. Yes, I'm just, I, I was hanging out with a Penn State fan on Saturday who was going through it, and yes, if they magically ran the table, won the Big Ten, they would be in the conversation we're just no, they would them. be in if they yeah. beat Ohio State in Columbus and then they won the Big Ten title. There, I mean, there I think be, they would be in over Alabama. Yes, but again, if if Baylor ran the table, some yes, if something weird, if, if right. we're going into weird situations here, yeah. yes, and it would be better for them to face an undefeated Minnesota in the Big Ten title game. Yes, and it, erase that loss. Yeah, um, I I think that Auburn's got a shot against Georgia this week at home, and then if that happens, then the conversation is going to turn towards what if Auburn beats Alabama in the Iron Bowl? Because Auburn is the one team that beat Oregon, you know? And if Oregon ends up as the team, you know, because consider this for a moment. If Auburn ran the table, Georgia would have two losses, Alabama would have two losses, they'd be out, right? If we assume Minnesota's going to lose once or twice down the stretch, they're out. Um, If we assume LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson aren't going to lose going into, for LSU, going into the championship game. And so, well, Auburn would not be in the championship game. Um, But LSU wins the championship. Ohio State wins the Big Ten. Clemson wins the ACC. Then you're talking about potentially it's two teams for one spot. It's Auburn and Oregon. And Oregon would be a conference champion with one loss. 
Auburn would be a non-conference champion with two losses, but they played head-to-head, and Auburn won. That would be in a really interesting conversation. I like Auburn this week, plus the points at home against Georgia. I think it's a six, six and a half, something like that. All right, we're done for the day. Uh, enjoy the day. Tommy's back with me tomorrow.